Order! Order! Parliament resumed at two on Tuesday, returning from a week's break to start the final three-week sitting period for the year, beginning with question time before the government's leader of the House, Jerry Brownlee, moved urgency. I move that urgency be accorded the introduction, first reading and referral to select committee of the Haranui Kaikoura Earthquakes Emergency Relief Bill and the introduction and passing through all stages of the Civil Defence Emergency Management Amendment Act 2016 Amendment Bill. Uh, Mr Speaker, these are two bills in a sequence of three that the House will deal with this week. The House deals with these bills in response to the uh, earthquake events which are well known to everyone in this chamber and outside. Uh, Mr Speaker, I think it would be an appropriate time for me to acknowledge the considerable work that's been done by officials over the past two weeks, working very long hours in many cases to ensure that these bills have got to a point where they could be further discussed. I want to also acknowledge the uh, uh, efforts of all parties in Parliament uh, who have come together on two occasions to consider a number of uh, uh, matters that are in this bill uh, and to try and shape them into uh, a, a pieces or pieces of law uh, that will do the job that we all want to see done, uh, but also show due respect for appropriate legal processes. Mr Speaker, the two bills uh, can be described first uh, as a bill that will make legal some of the things that particularly the rural community have had to do, uh, either to get themselves out of their farm properties or perhaps to put water back on for their stock uh, or to uh, re-erect sheds or any other of the things that are necessary uh, to keep a farming operation uh, going, uh, all sir, generally with the welfare of the animals concerned uh, to the fore. Uh, Mr Speaker, uh, we will talk further about the details of that bill. Uh, can I say that there has been uh, appropriate concerns expressed as the bill was developed, and as a consequence, after the first reading, it will go to a select committee for just one day, but in that day it will give uh, not only members of the uh, law and order, the um, Local Government and uh, Environment Committee a chance to further test its meaning uh, with officials, but also to consider any other matters that might arise out of that discussion. Mr Speaker, the uh, Civil Defence Emergency Management Amendment Act 2016 was passed just four days before this earthquake event. It had in it a commencement date of the 14th of May 2017 for uh, what I call transitional powers and authorities. What this bill does is amend the Act further uh, to bring that date forward, but it doesn't put the same obligation on councils that don't need it at this point. Mr Speaker, uh, this is far from a first reading speech. That will be a more scintillating uh, offering to the House, and I know that Mr Grant uh, Robertson will probably want to record for those hours of the, of the evening when he is suffering insomnia and needs a little bit of help to drift off. Mr Speaker, for that reason, the Government, uh, as, with the support of other parties in the House, considers that urgency is appropriate on this occasion. The question is that the motion be agreed to. Those of that opinion will say aye. aye. To the contrary, no. The ayes have it. I understand it is the intention of the Government to introduce two bills. Kaikoura Earthquakes Emergency Relief Bill, Introduction. Civil Defence Emergency Management Amendment Act 2016 Amendment Bill, Introduction. Those bills are set down for first reading, forthwith the Honourable Jerry Brownlee. Mr Speaker, I move that the Haranui Kaikoura Earthquakes uh, Emergency Relief Bill uh, be now read a first time. I nominate the Local Government 
and Environment Committee to consider the bill. At the appropriate time, I intend to move that the bill will be reported to the House on the 1st of December 2016 and that the committee have the authority to meet at any time while the House is sitting, except during oral questions and during any evening on a day on which there has been a sitting of the House, despite Standing Order 19.1b and c. Mr Speaker, it gives me... Uh, it, it is a... a, 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 a um, it's not really an honour, sir, because... What we are doing here is interesting, introducing a bill that is absolutely necessary in these circumstances. And I think it's just worth traversing the fact that the House considered, uh, um, or will consider shortly, a bill that will move us from the emergency state into transition. This bill, however, sir, is about making sure that uh, people who have taken actions over the last uh, two and a half weeks or so uh, can do so with the comfort that they are not going to find themselves in breach of the law moving forward, provided uh, the reasons for their actions uh, do line up with the uh, relatively, I think, generous provisions that are in the law. We know, sir, that when you get an earthquake uh, the size of this one, it does cause damage of different types in different places. In Wellington here, it's been the shaking damage that's uh, affected buildings, uh, in Kaikoura, for example, it's been often landslips, land slumping, uh, as well as the upwelling of the earth that has caused considerable amount of difficulty. And one of those difficulties, sir, is that uh, a town like Kaikoura, largely dependent on tourism, finds itself uh, now caught with just a window of two hours on each side of the high tide in order to, where they can get uh, boats out for whale watch or for swimming with dolphins or feeding sharks or swimming with seals or for fishing charters or any other number of activities that go along uh, the, the side of that beautiful coast. So they will have to uh, have that harbour dredged and they need to have that done very quickly in order to preserve the local economy. So this bill uh, enables some of that uh, and, Mr Speaker, the committee uh, will, when it considers the bill under the... Uh, during this, the uh, select committee process, uh, look further at some of the questions that were raised in the cross-party forum as late as last evening. But in essence, it is a bill that will allow things to move forward uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, I'm sure the contributions from others in the House will elucidate areas that they uh, wish to highlight or uh, explain their positions on, etc. Uh, but I finish this contribution by thanking all those who have participated in the process to date. Uh, and uh, assure that anyone who is watching this process that this bill going to a select committee for a short time uh, recognises its, uh, its uh, unique nature, uh, but is absolutely necessary. Before going into urgency, the day began as usual with question time, starting with this one for the Prime Minister, John Key, from the Deputy Leader of the New Zealand First Party, Ron Mark. The House comes to questions for oral answer. Question number one in the name of Ron Mark. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister and asks, does he stand by all his statements, and if so, how? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Yes, and with fear and trepidation, I'm about to be mauled by the member. <laughs> Supplementary question, Supplementary. Ron Mark. Thank you, Mr Speaker. To the Prime Minister, how does he stand by the statement on the new parliamentary palace that, quote, it just makes sense long term for us to own these premises, end of quote, when he does not have the same view 
on the ownership of state houses or, for that matter, state power companies. Yeah, right on Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, yes, and I can assure the House that if that member got anywhere near ever being a minister, he'd be the first one round measuring up the carpets, trying to check that it was a big enough office for his ego. <laughs> Question supplementary. Oh. Order. Order. Supplementary. Order. Supplementary question, Ron Mark. Thank you, Mr Speaker, to the Prime Minister. If he says, quote, the economics support that view, end of quote, how much rent has the taxpayer paid for Bowen House since it was sold in 1998 by a national government that included Ministers English, Brownlee and the current Speaker? In so far as this Prime Minister responsibility, the Right Honourable Prime Minister. Well, Mr Speaker, firstly, um, the Member will appreciate, A, I don't have the information. Uh, the Speaker's office may have that as, as someone responsible for the parliamentary precinct. Secondly, I wasn't in government in 1998, uh, nor was I in Parliament, uh, but Winston Peters was. Entry. Order. Supplementary question, Ron Mark. Thank you, Mr Speaker. To the Prime Minister, if the, quote, economics support that view, end of quote, in 2016, does that not mean that the sale of Bowen House by the national government was hardly prudent economic management on behalf of the hard-pressed taxpayer? The right honourable Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, no, I think circumstances change, but one thing that we are aware of now, I think, is that under an MMP environment where there's changing configurations in Parliament, and actually with increasing security risks, as we saw on Budget Day uh, in 2016, I think overall it makes sense for uh, the completion of the new parliamentary complex. As I said at my post-cabinet press conference yesterday, it makes economic sense, and I think it actually makes practical sense for uh, Parliament as a... As a uh, operating unit. As a supplementary. Supplementary question, Ron Mark. Thank you, Mr Speaker. To the Prime Minister, if the 1998 privatisation of government buildings, which included Bowen House, was meant to build, quote, a broad Kiwi shareholding democracy, end of quote, why was the company it was sold under subsequently taken over by Australians and delisted and again, in as far as there may be some Prime Minister of responsibility, the Right Honourable Prime Minister. Speaker, I, I don't have any knowledge of that, and B, I don't have any parliamentary responsibility for that, but, but given, given uh, the member is a, in a party called New Zealand First, and he seems to be opposed to everything that migrants and offshore people do, I would have thought he would like a parliamentary complex owned by the New Zealand taxpayer, not a building owned by a foreigner. Supplementary. Order. Supplementary question, Ron Mark. You are silly. You are silly, buddy. Supplementary to the order, Prime Minister. Order, order, just before I call Ron Mark, I just need a little less uh, interjection from my right-hand side. Supplementary question, Thank you, Mr Speaker. Mark. To the Prime Minister. Evan, 1997, the cost to build the Parliamentary Palace then was $94 million. How could the cost in 2016 possibly be 100 million, particularly when it now includes a rebuild of the press gallery, isn't it more likely to be in excess of 200 million? Again, insofar as there may be Prime Minister uh, Speaker, uh, well, the, the simple answer is I, I don't know what they were proposing in 1997, but my guess is a, a completely different uh, complex. Um, as 
as the Speaker has correctly, correctly said yesterday in his capacity about the parliamentary complex, uh, this makes sense for the taxpayer because the ultimate, the ultimate cost of owning the building over a longer period of time is actually cheaper uh, than paying rent. Ron Mark also put in a request for a snap debate, getting this to... Ron Mark also put in a request for a snap debate, getting this decision from the Speaker, David Carter, at the end of question time. I have received a letter from Ron Mark seeking to debate Understanding Order 389, the announcement made by the Speaker yesterday to construct a new building for Parliament. The urgent debate is a way of holding the Government accountable for an action for which it is responsible. The Speaker is not part of the Government and is not able to take part in the debate as a Minister can. I do note that in September 1997, the Speaker granted a similar application for an urgent debate. However, on that occasion, it was in respect of an announcement made by the Government and not by the Speaker. The application is therefore declined. Other questions included this one for the Minister of Police, Judith Collins, from the ACT member for Epsom, David Seymour. What reassurance can she give to Epsom residents concerned that their community policing centre will cease to operate after 24 years? The Honourable Judith Collins. Mr Speaker, I can advise the member that I have asked the same question of police because I very much understand the value of a community police presence. I have sought assurance that Epsom residents will have continued access to our excellent New Zealand Police Service. Police have assured me that police staff will remain very much visible and working in Epsom. Police staff will continue to hold weekly community clinics in Epsom as well as maintain the presence of a community constable and continue with foot patrols, school visits and community policing as usual. Supplementary. Supplementary question, David Seymour. Will the Minister consider setting policy for police such that the rental paid for premises for community policing centres might keep up with rising property values across the Auckland region? The Honourable Judith Collins. Well, Mr Speaker, I'm sure that that would be actually quite outside ministerial control under the Policing Act 2008. Supplementary question, David Seymour. In light of a reduction of hours of attendance by police at the policing centre, uh, does the Minister anticipate that police numbers will increase to reduce pressure on that duty as well as others faced by the police across the Auckland region? The Honourable Judith Collins. Well, Mr Speaker, I'm sure that that member has heard both the Prime Minister and myself state that there will, in fact, need to be... uh, an increase in resourcing into the future, and I expect that he will want to wait to wait uh, wait for that announcement. Supplementary. Supplementary question, David Seymour. Does the minister see the value in a monthly newsletter circulated by volunteers at the centre, including tips for fighting crime for residents and crime statistics provided to them by local police? The honourable Judith Collins. Yes. Supplementary question, Stuart Nash. Thank you. To the Minister, are there any plans to permanently close any more community policing centres other than those in Ellerslie, Pamuir and Epsom, which were confirmed over the weekend? The Honourable Judith Mr Speaker, that 
uh, decision would be made by the police. It's an operational decision. And, and as far as I'm aware, no. Supplementary. Supplementary question, Stuart Nash. Are there any plans to reopen the Mount Roskill station to the public as it was for many years before it was recently closed? The Honourable Judith Well, Collins. Mr Speaker, I'm sure that member's fully aware that the matter is simply being addressed around the health and safety issues of volunteers in that particular uh, kiosk. I'd also say to him, I, I am, however, uh, very soon about to open a new police station in the city of Napier. And I'm sure that the local member would want to congratulate the police on what an excellent station it's going to be. Supplementary. Oh, sup supplementary question... David Seymour. Uh, in light of the Minister's quite proper inability to intervene in operational matters of the police, uh, what are uh, residents concerned about a lack of funding for community policing centre premises uh, able to do to have their concerns heard? The Honourable Judith Collins. Well, Mr Speaker, obviously the local member has raised the issue quite properly and it's a matter that I'm sure that the police are listening to, but in relation to resourcing of police, New Zealand police are currently at an incredibly high level of public satisfaction. I think it's now 84%, which is a long way from 28% of some other parties. Um, and um, I believe, Mr Speaker, that the people of Epsom will see some very good progress in the future. There were just three select committee meetings during the week and only one of them here at Parliament, where MPs on the Transport and Industrial Relations Subcommittee gathered in Room 1 in Bowen House to hear submissions on the Land Transport Amendment Bill. Among several proposed changes that it would make to the Land Transport Act of 1998 are measures to update regulation of small passenger services, like taxis, and means of reducing fare dodging on public transport, which was just one of the concerns of the Ortaki Road Safety Group's convener, Fred MacDonald, who began by explaining how he came to be making one of 90 submissions that the committee received on this bill. So I happened to be surfing Parliament one night and saw that uh, you people were inviting this submission. Um, a couple of days before, we'd been parked outside Parliament here and had to feed the dreaded meter, and it was quite simple. You know, you put your money in and you get your ticket. That reminded Mr McDonald of the gate technology used overseas to control access to platforms at train and subway stations. See that cool parking meters out here, you know, and, and I've gone in depth into uh, the specifications, so it makes it easy, um, and I'd like to see that happen. I travel regularly on passenger transport. We get our part-time suburban bus service from Otaki down to meet to the electric rail head at Waikanae, and I see fare dodging all the bloody time, and it's yeah. Look, I'll give you an example. Six young guys got on at Pororo, whacked off their face. The, the, the train was full and the guard didn't have time to get down before Kennaparoo. And then he got to them and they said, oh, we got no money. He said, right, you're off at Linden. They said, oh, well, we're only going there anyway. They do that deliberately. I've seen a young lady do that from Waikanae to Power Pram. Uh, people buy 10-trip tickets, Waikanae to Wellington. They also buy a Tawa one. And they get the Tawa one clicked. It's a lot cheaper. There's all sorts of little dodges go on. If you introduce the gating and vending machine type concept, you nail them before they get onto the platform. And Mr McDonald had this response to a suggestion that controlled access systems might be too elaborate and costly for small country stations. At Silverstream Railway Station, there's a sliding gate affair that closes off access to the platform. 
because a little schoolboy got killed there one day he's on his iPod on and he walked straight in front of the train well when they opened Waikanae I straight away asked that they would do that there because a lot of older people from the eastern side of Waikanae and they wouldn't get used to more trains and regularly running well touch wood no one's been clobbered 150,000 to put that sliding gate system in but it's not happening it could happen in Auckland it could happen all over the, the dangerous Waikanae is a real danger spot and it should have it um, Bikehawk's the same you know at the north end the people come down the platform and they've got to wait while the train departs and goes north well they should have that sliding gate there because sooner or later someone's going to get clobbered there so the answers are there yeah. you know um, and, and I just sort of like to take the opportunity while I'm with you people to, to try and get it through that you know there is a bit of a failure in the system mm. and, and a disconnect Mr McDonald will return later in the programme but his claim of a disconnect resonated throughout the next submission, which was also about the application of technology to improve transport safety, this time in taxis, as MPs tried to get to grips with the application of a smartphone application or app known as Uber, represented at the committee by the firm's local general manager, Richard Menzies. I'd like to firstly welcome the steps taken by the government towards developing a regulatory framework that accommodates people sharing rides in their personal cars, what we call ride-sharing. It's important to note that Uber wants ride-sharing to be regulated. <clears throat> we agree with Minister Bridges that ride-sharing has a key role to play in New Zealand transport, particularly in relation to reducing congestion. Sensible regulations will further open up this opportunity in New Zealand, and we look forward to working with the Ministry of Transport and the NZTA to implement these reforms as soon as possible. Mr Menzies then explained Uber's operation. Uber provides a technology platform that connects riders with drivers. It's as simple as that. If only that were true. Time and again, Mr Menzies had to explain the difference between the world of marked taxi cabs and taxi ranks and the Uber world in the cloud where drivers, cars and passengers are united on a server, probably in some far distant land. Ridesharing does not account for the sort of characteristics of traditional transport models. Ridesharing does not involve rank and hail work that typically defines a taxi, with all the requirements that apply specifically to taxis. Likewise, ridesharing does not involve the analogue booking characteristics of, the, of private hire drivers. Despite that assurance, Mr Menzies was required to back the claim that hiring Uber was as safe, if not safer, than hailing a passing cab or choosing one off a rank. We agree that safety and consumer protection are the number one priority. That is why we've implemented an onboarding process that involves Ministry of Justice criminal history checks, NZTA driving history checks, as well as registering all our partners on the NZTA's driver check platform for daily updates on any statuses of any licence status changes. We changed our onboarding processes to demonstrate that new technologies and new, more efficient processes could achieve the public safety objectives that people expect but do so in a way that allows everyday citizens to provide rides in their personal cars. Nevertheless, Mr Menzies still faced questions about Uber's position in what's now known as the rank and hail space. So one of the really unique things about Uber that helps distinguish it from traditional private hire or taxi services is that all trips are facilitated via the Uber app. There's no such thing as rank and hail work, so people can't simply spot an Uber and jump into a random car. The rider has to already be signed up via the Uber app. We have their credit card details on file, we know who they are. 
The driver also has to have been through our onboarding processes and we have a record of that driver too, so we know that they're safe and have met the requirements to be on the road. In an instant that a driver no longer meets those requirements, if, say, a, a document expires, like their warrant of fitness, we automatically remove their access to the Uber platform. So someone can't take Uber trips unless they're registered and available to be online with our platform. Uber's general manager also responded to questions about the lack of safety cameras in Uber vehicles, raised in another context when, after leaving that meeting, I headed across town to get a haircut, grabbing a taxi from the rank on Lambton Quay opposite Bowen House. No need to fiddle with my phone. In the hail and ride space, you just get in and go. I had been reminded of my very first experience of a parliamentary select committee back in the early 1990s, when the Bolger National Government was implementing the sweeping free market reforms started by the Fourth Labour Government of David Longy and Roger Douglas. They included wholesale deregulation of transport at a time when taxi companies were licensed. Taxi drivers were male and white and wore walk shorts and knee socks. And there were long queues at taxi ranks, especially after the movies on Friday and Saturday nights. A far cry from the present when it's taxis that queue for passengers, and there were so many taxi ranks that it's very easy to get a taxi, but very hard to find a park. As all good journalism is done from the back of a taxi, I asked my driver, who must remain anonymous, what he thought of Uber. Uh, Uber like taxis, but not like taxis, because they don't have taxi stand. But they still deliver like people from place to place, and uh, uh, they are cheaper than other companies. But sometimes they are uh, more expensive. Their uh, like fare is multiplied by two, sometimes by three. It depends upon how are they busy. So some people they were upset, and some people they were happy with them. Do you regard them as competition? Yeah, of course they are competing with other taxis. Uh, companies here in New Zealand and uh, yeah they are they have many drivers now as I hear maybe 200 drivers do you think the competition is fair no pun intended what's not fair we have some requires we have to do as a taxi drivers but for the Uber they are not required those things like I have this security camera in my car if security camera is not working uh, police will fine me $400. So why I have been fined $400 for it's not working, my, ca- my security camera, while they don't have anything in their cars. Do you think that um, also lack of signage is a problem with safety, not knowing that they are taxis? Yeah, of course, people, they don't know if this like uh, delivering people or it's a private car. Like when I'm driving, any mistake I do, Always other drivers are looking, oh, this flank, this, this company, they're complaining against me. Even for small, small, tiny things, while nobody will complain against them because they don't know they are taxi drivers or not. Mr Menzies' reply to that Wellington taxi driver's point about the lack of cameras and Uber vehicles would have gone like this. So the technology that we have in place, uh, as I said, fundamentally changes that safety profile. Uh, because it's not an unknown transaction. We know who the rider is, who the driver is, and all of that information that's packaged into that. In the unlikely event that an issue does arise, we actually have uh, 24-7 support monitoring the feedback so we can respond to those issues very quickly. Uh, We also have the ability to remove a driver's and rider's access from that platform very, very quickly. And we have a law enforcement response team that's fully set up to process any law enforcement data requests very, very quickly and efficiently to support investigations. 
Uber's general manager for New Zealand, Richard Menzies, speaking to members of the Transport and Industrial Relations Subcommittee, hearing submissions on the Land Transport Amendment Bill. And there's plenty of time to sort out their rank and hail space from their rider meets driver Uber app because they don't have to report the bill back until the middle of March next year. Now, before Fred McDonald gets the final word, here's the Leader of the House, Jerry Brownlee, with a preview of the week ahead. Mr Speaker, when the House resumes on Tuesday the 29th of November, the Government will look to complete the third readings of the Children, Young Persons and Their Families Advocacy, Workforce and Age Settings Amendment Bill, the Wildlife Powers Amendment Bill and a number of other bills on the order paper. Wednesday the 30th of, of November will be a Members' Day. The Leader of the House, Jerry Brownlee, now hears Otaki Road Safety Group convener, Fred MacDonald, with some parting advice to MPs on the Transport and Industrial Relations Committee. It's got to trickle down from you guys, and you've got to know, you've got to hear from the grassroots, because the bureaucrats won't tell you. They want jobs for their great-grandchildren, they're not in any hurry whatsoever. So you understand um, where I come from. And that's Otaki, south of Levin as committee member Morris Williamson confirmed after he got out his iPad and Googled it. I'm Tom Fruin and this programme was made with funding from Parliament.